This morning, I want to begin with a question, a quick poll. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to raise your hand for these, um, but uh, maybe just as you're thinking about these, what's your gut reaction to this? The question is this, which one of these would be most encouraging for our church? Which one of these would be most encouraging for our church? The first option there is if we elected a Christian as a president this year. Secondly, if our church doubled in size this year. Like, wow, that would be so encouraging. Thirdly, if Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift hold up a John 3.16 sign tonight as tens of millions watch the Super Bowl. Or lastly, if we were persecuted for our faith. It reminds me of that, that song as a, as a child, you heard this song, right? One of these is not like the other. One of these just doesn't belong. Because many of us, we, we're like, man, if I just, boom. If we just had this. If we could just, man, then God could really do something. Then that would be evidence of God's hand on us. But can I tell you, friend, this book of Revelation is written to the persecuted church, and our scars, our emotional, physical, spiritual, psychological scars that we walk around with are evidence that Jesus Christ is victorious because we hold on to hope. It's like when a kid uh, falls and, and gets a scrape, gets a, gets a boo-boo on their knee. If they don't receive attention for that, if you, if you just, ah, just rub some dirt on it, just keep going, What's actually going to happen, what psychologists tell us uh, and sociologists, what they say is what happens is if that, if that child, that wound does not receive attention, that child is not going to go back out and be any more courageous. They're actually scared because they're not sure what's going to happen with them. But if you simply put a Band-Aid on that, if you simply address the wound, then they're like, oh man, somebody's got my back. I can go out here and I can take on the world. And they, get, they fall and they get hurt again. But it's okay because mom or dad are there and they can bandage them up and they go back out and they're good. We're the same way as individuals. And can I tell you this, that if Jesus Christ were still dead, we would have no reason to have any sort of courage. Notice the word right there, the, the root word for encouragement is courage. It's heart. But friends, this morning, we can take heart because Jesus Christ is alive. And so the book of Revelation is written to a church that is being persecuted. And from our persecution, it, it, it declares to the world, y'all can do whatever y'all want to to us. It declares to the enemy, whatever happens to me, Jesus Christ is victorious. And these scars are a reminder, not that there's power or strength in this world or from the enemy, but there's power and, and strength in Jesus because we run to him and he attunes to our need. He attunes to our hurt. And then as we go back out, he goes with us. So as we read Revelation, it's a, it's, a, it's a church that is being persecuted for their faith. Before we jump into this morning's passage, three principles for understanding for reading Revelation. The first principle is this. It is not written for speculators. The book of Revelation is not uh, like when you were a kid, you got these uh, decoder rings like in a cereal box, you know, and you had these rings and you had like a mystery to figure out on the back of the box or the inside of the cardboard box. The, the book of Revelation is not a decoder ring so we can understand how to interpret our current events or as we look at a newspaper or look at our news feed. We don't, we don't sit here and say, man, how does this line up and exactly what are the dates and what are all these things mean? And I think these things are building. It's not. It's not for speculation. 
Secondly, it is for dissidents. The book of Revelation is for dissidents. If you notice, the, I don't know if the uh, antonym of dissidents is residents, but they look really similar, um, except for the, uh, the prefix on there. So I should have done some research on that. I'm sure somebody will tell me afterwards, and I really appreciate that in advance. Um, so for dissidents, we are not here. This is not our home. We are simply pilgrims we're passing through. We are not residents of this world, trying to figure out how to make this life as good as we can. We are not residents of this kingdom. We are residents of a different kingdom. We are citizens. We are saints of a different kingdom, a spiritual kingdom where Jesus Christ is our king. So in the middle of that, we push back. We're dissidents pushing back against our enemy, the strength and the power of this world. We push back against the schemes of the devil. We push back and say, we're not going to give in to the lies of this world. Thirdly, the book of Revelation requires imagination. We're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff in here. And this morning we begin looking at what is he talking about here when he's, thankfully, here in chapter one, he says, hey, we got these seven stars, we got these lampstands, these candlesticks. And he says, hey, here's what it means. We don't see that very much throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. So here he's like, hey, Revelation's really cool. It's going to be super easy. Chapter two, boom, smacks you in the face, all right? But this requires our imagination. We cannot read the book of Revelation like we would the book of Romans. Are they both authoritative and part of the word of God? Yes and amen. Absolutely. But they are not written in the same way. We can't read the book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Leviticus in the same way. It's going to get really weird. So we can't read the book of Revelation like we would Romans. We have to read it a little more like Lord of the Rings. It's going to require some imagination. The reason I say that is because that's the way it was written. It's not because I'm trying to add something to it. We must have a sanctified imagination. In fact, imagination is this. Imagination ignites the mundane. It invites us into a world that transcends our world so that we can return to our world transformed by the conversion of our thinking. So we talked about last week this cosmic battle that's been happening since creation. And here, Revelation, it, it ignites our imagination. He's, here's, a, here's a vision. Look at this. Could you imagine what if it invites us to this transcendent world, this spiritual world where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning today so that we go and we're like, man, Jesus Christ is on the throne. Isn't this amazing? And then we come back and we go to work. And we come back and we go to our homes. We deal with our kids. We put up with our spouse. We, we have to uh, live across the fence from this neighbor we have bills to pay, but we're reminded that we are part of a different kingdom and that that transcends the world that we see. If we get to the very end of Revelation in chapter 22 and we can explain every single symbol in Revelation and we can identify every Old Testament illusion and we can trace every connection, but we are still intimidated with the world's opinion of us and we are still enamored with the world's power and wealth. And we're still attracted to the world's comfort and pleasure. We will not have truly heard or kept the message of revelation. So let me say that a, a, a little different way. If we get to the end of revelation and we can explain every single symbol, but we're still intimidated by the world's opinion of us, 
we have not heard or kept the message of Revelation. If we get to the end of Revelation and we can identify every single Old Testament illusion, yet we're still enamored with the world's power and wealth, we will not have kept or heard the message of Revelation. If we get to the end of this book and we can trace every connection, yet we're still attracted to it, our hearts are still drawn to the world's comfort and pleasure, we will have missed the message of Revelation. May it be not so. Paul Spilsbury, a New Testament theologian, he says that Revelation wants us to take its world to be even more real than the one that we commonly refer to as the real world. Now, he wrote this about 25 years ago. What was one of the, what was one of the main shows that we had on television at that time? The real world on MTV. So he's, he's using that there. He finishes, in fact, Revelation is out to undermine our confidence in the evidence of our own eyes. That's powerful. Take a picture. Go with that every single morning on your way into work as you're sitting at a stoplight. Reflect back on that. This is what I see is not primary. What I see is not ultimate. There is an ultimate reality where Jesus Christ is king. So hopefully you're in the book of Revelation with me already. Psalm chapter 119 and verse 18. If you would repeat these words after me, and may this be our prayer this morning. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Amen. Make this our prayer, Lord. So if we see here in verse number nine, notice it says that I, John, now we didn't talk about most of this context, authorship, provenance, all these different items last week. So I want to hit on these this week because this is where John introduces himself. So last week we saw this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of end time events. He wants us to be enamored with, enraptured by Jesus Christ. So God the Father gave this message to Jesus Christ the Son, who gives it to an angel, who presents it to John. We saw that last week. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to the podcast, online, uh, YouTube, Facebook, whatever you want to. It's all there. Also, by the way, if you have my number and if you don't, just come see me afterwards or ask somebody who does. If you want any of my notes, references, um, uh, quotes, anything, I've got all that. It's I think it's pretty well organized. Any refer anything that I'm reading, anything that goes into this, you're like, man, what was that? Just shoot me a text, and I'll send all that stuff to you. I'll send you a link to where it's all kept. But as we see here, uh, so I would encourage you, look at that last week. Verse number nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Real quick, before we jump in, I want to answer these five questions, who, what, when, where, and why. Notice here, he says there are two things that are happening simultaneously. And we talk about this endurance, this perseverance, this hupomone there in the Greek. He says there are two things happening, the tribulation and the kingdom. Both of these things are here. That's why this is not a matter of what's going to happen. Let's just look at it. This is a matter of perception. Here is what is happening. So first, we have to answer the question, who? He says, I, John. Who is John? John was a disciple of Jesus. It was James and John. They were called the sons of thunder. So uh, think uh, wrestlers. WWE wrestlers, these sons of thunder, we, we think of all the apostles as just these holy men with the nuclear halo around their head uh, because the Catholic Church gave that to us. Um, thank you for that. Uh, but but th these guys, they came in, Jesus is like, hey, I want you to come follow me. They're not called the sons of thunder because of their meekness. They're called sons of thunder because they would mess you up. 
So we have John, he's a rough dude. He's really rough around the edges. He says that's who he's talking about. John wrote the Gospel of John. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not a band from the 60s. Um, These were the uh, Gospel authors here that start the New Testament. John wrote the Gospel of John. He followed Jesus around for three and a half years. He wrote three other epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He couldn't think of a more creative name, so he just numbered them after himself. This is the John that we're talking about. And at this time, as soon as Jesus ascends back up into heaven, John is the primary leader in the church there in Jerusalem, the Christian church there in Jerusalem. He is the primary. if, If you knew about Christianity, you knew about John. You had heard of him. He was the Billy Graham of Christianity of his day. So as we see John, he was, we knew who he was, they knew who he was. Secondly, what is happening here? And we see, look at verse number uh, 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see. So this is, revelation is a vision. Now, the difference between a vision and a dream, a vision occurs when you are awake. A dream occurs when you are asleep. But you are able to see into the spiritual realm what's happening. Now, notice he, he heard and he saw something outside of himself. He heard something. He says, I heard something behind me. So it's not just he has this idea inside of his head. It's happening to him spiritually, physically, emotionally. He's, he's having, he's all there. He sees, he hears something behind him. It's not just an inner musing. The third question is the question of when. When was John written? Now the church grew. Uh, we have Christ who ascends back up into heaven. And then about a week and a half later, they're all huddled up in this upper room. They're all freaking out. The Holy Spirit shows up. Thousands begin getting saved. And so that's Acts chapter 2. So from Acts chapter 2 until about 65 AD, the church is growing and thriving. In about that year, we have these other uh, Roman emperors, and we have Nero. Everybody say Nero. Probably heard of Nero. He says, I don't like, because they're not worshiping me as God. And so Nero does not like the Christians. So he sets Rome on fire because he wanted to clear out a space for him to have a bigger temple. Um, And he says, it's the Christians who did it. The Christians are like, it's not us. We're we're here. And you can read historians. Besides the government, the society loved Christians because of the way that they cared for the poor. You can go back and read um, secular and Christian historians on that. Nero says, It's the Christians' fault. Um, So he begins persecuting the Christians. The Christians, uh, they revolt, and there's this this Jewish revolt that happens in about that year. And then in 70 AD, Rome comes in and destroys the temple there in Jerusalem. And they're like, we are done with y'all. We are going to level the temple. Maybe you're familiar with um, the destruction of Jerusalem there in 70 AD. 70 AD is huge because several other major uh, events occur. That's probably the year that Paul was martyred and that Peter was martyred, crucified upside down, along with his wife, and that Timothy, First and Second Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy. That's the year that he was probably also martyred as well. So when we answer the question of when, the church is in upheaval because they are being persecuted. The 70 AD would be like if the American government came in today and killed John Piper, John MacArthur, and Matt Chandler. We'd be like, something is wrong. So here we have their leaders being put to death for what they believed. And the reason is because they were getting political. I thought we were going to separate church and politics. I'm all about that, man. 
I'm all about, you know, separation of church and state. Let me know where that is in the, you know, founding documents. But that's, but the reason that they were put to death is because Caesar, Nero, the leaders would say, call us Lord, worship us, call us literally Lord, curios. And they said, we're not going to call you Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. So there are two options for when, so that's a bit of the context, for when Revelation was written. There's one option, and this would be an early date. It was written between 67 and 69 AD, and it was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think there are going to be people who hold that view in heaven. Just a few of them, but there's going to, I'm just kidding. Um, But that would say an early date, and so Revelation is talking about, here's the destruction of Jerusalem. I think, there are some, I think there are some difficulties with that understanding. Uh, one being, why, did they, why, why would it have to be written in a vision? Why not just say, here's, here's what's about to happen. If a vision was unnecessary, why not just call Rome, Rome, instead of calling it a beast or a dragon? So I would hold to this. I'll put my cards on the table. The vast majority of commentators and interpreters, and myself, I would hold to a later date, 92 to 96 AD. Also, every church, early church father is going to hold to an early date up until the, the third century. All of the early writings that we have say that John was in exile in Patmos under Domitian. Everybody say Domitian. During these dates, he's the one that sent John uh, into exile on Patmos. So we'll talk about where in just a second. That's where he was. So it was probably written in these later dates. Again, not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but looking at here is the story of what happens throughout time in this spiritual realm. So we have to understand, here's the why. Also, as we, as we talk about the, if we talk about the when, by the way, if the book of Revelation was simply, if Let's, take it, let's, let's remove it from being a book in the Bible just for a second. Because before it was a book in the Bible, it was a letter to the churches. If the letter to the churches was only for the church of that time and not for the church of the ages, then it should not have been a part of the canon. Because it was only applicable to the church in that time. And at that point, there's no other reason for us to read Revelation except as a history rather than looking forward and looking at what happens. So, again... I could be wrong on that. I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm wrong about something I'm going to say every single Sunday in the book of Revelation. Everybody good with that? Just give me a big thumbs up. You're like, it's okay to be wrong. You're not God. Boom. Perfect. That's why we need his grace. Thank you, Jesus. So as we look at this, we, we can't be too myopic, individualistic in how we interpret this. That's why we can't use this as a decoder ring and, oh man, what exactly does it mean for 2024? It has to mean in 2024 what it meant in 67 AD, which is what it meant in 1000 AD, which is what it has meant for the church of the ages. Otherwise, we become incredibly individualistic. The fourth question here is the question of why, of, sorry, of where. And John says right here, he's writing on this island called Patmos. Everybody say Patmos. Patmos was uh, an island in the middle of Uh, modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece. It's right there, almost smack dab in the middle. And rebels, uh, those who were in prison, they were sent to the island of Patmos in exile. And on Patmos, it was essentially a concentration camp. It was no walk in the park. We think island, and we're like, man, that would be amazing, you know, uh, with, you know, drinks being brought to us and, you know, somebody fanning us. That's not this. This is a concentration camp. They were forced to work in marble quarries almost the entire day. They were beaten. There was very little food given to them. 
Even if you go to Patmos today, there was a cave where John probably received this revelation. He had, it's not like they had anywhere to sleep. They were like, hey, we're going to take you there until you die. So he's writing this from the Isle of Patmos with his life uh, coming to an end. He, he's in the other question of where. So there's a, a, the question of where was this originated, but also the question of provenance, where's the destination, who was this written to? And he says here, it's written to the seven churches. So here's a, a, a map of these seven churches, and he talks about these seven churches here. And when he begins, and you can read it there at the very end of the passage, these are the seven churches, and next week we'll begin, and he, pre, he speaks about these churches in the exact same order, and he begins with Ephesus, and he goes in a clockwise manner. So he says, I'm writing to the church in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum, in Thyatira, in Sardis, in Philadelphia, and in Laodicea. Literal places. But also understand, just like all of the other letters that went forward, in that time, these are circular letters. So if these letters were simply meant for the church up until 70 AD, and if it was only meant just for these churches, we have to read that differently than we, read, we, than we would read the book of Galatians. Because if the book of Galatians is only for the church of Galatians, that means it can't apply to us at all. And if Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples of the whole world, and he only told them, that means he didn't tell us to make disciples at all. So we have to be careful with that hermeneutic, that interpretation to say, this is only for those churches. No, he's sending it to those churches in the same way that Paul write a letter to the Galatians and say, to the church in Galatia, do this. And then that letter goes to Galatia, then it goes out and all the other churches get it and they get to hear about who God is and what he has done and how they are to live. This is the same way. He's writing it to the seven churches so that they would circulate it all throughout the area. And then lastly, we get to the question of why. Why did John write this? We mentioned Domitian. He's on the throne. On the, he's the Roman emperor from 81 to 96. And he's the very first emperor who said that everyone must go to the temple and worship. And as they do, take a pinch of incense as the, as the pagans would do. Even Christians were required to go to the temple, take a pinch of incense and put it on the fire and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. That flies exactly in the face of what Jesus Christ said. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. He's saying to worship me. And it's not just a matter of, ah, I'm going to do this so my life is spared. No, he's saying, yeah, but you, you can do that if you want to, but it's an expression of what's happening inside of you. So if I say Caesar is Lord, I cannot also simultaneously say that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the reason that John receives this, the reason that he was on Patmos, the reason I think this is a little bit of a later date with that context is because John was a threat to Roman unity. He was labeled an atheist. He was anti the Roman emperor being the theist, God, theos there in the Greek. So here he is a dissident and he's saying to the other churches, don't give in to the physical and slash spiritual powers of this world. Remain faithful to Jesus Christ. He alone is Lord. The other thing here, why is this written? It says here in, uh, in verse, number, verse number nine, he receives this on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because he was contrary to Curios Lord, 
sorry, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. He's saying, I'm testifying. That word testify there is the same word for martyr. I'm giving my life everything I am for the sake of Jesus. I'm testifying to Jesus. He has my life. Now, real quick before we keep moving on, uh, Tertullian at the end of the third century says, sorry, the end of the second century, he said, um, and this is where it originated. Uh, I don't know if this is historical fact or not. A lot of people believe this to be true is that John was actually, they tried, they tried to kill him. They tried, they threw him in a vat of oil. The whole time that he was in that vat of, of steaming oil, he did not die. Now, I don't know if that's hundred percent true or not. We don't know. What we do know is that John wrote this. He was the messenger of God to write this for the church of the ages. So whether or not they tried to kill John and he wouldn't die from a vat of oil, we don't know. Secondly, it's possible that, um, that John was such a prominent leader in the church, they didn't want to kill him and thus increase this revolt against the Roman government. So there was this Jewish-Roman conflict that's happening this Christian-Roman conflict that's happening. So instead of taking the leader and saying, we're going to kill you, John, then everybody revolts, and they have this incredible mess. They're like, we're going to take John, and we're going to send him to this island instead. That's not killing him, but letting you know we don't like what he's saying. And then lastly, I think, I think one of the possibilities, and it's not original to me, but I think one of the possibilities that, that John had to write this as apocalyptic literature is because as he's on the island of Patmos, it's not like he can simply write to uh, the churches and say, hey, don't hail Caesar as Lord. Remain, uh, profess Jesus Christ as Lord only. Here's what's going to happen. Let me tell you what's about to happen. So in, in, in really clear terms, he had to write it in terms so that the Roman soldiers who were watching him would not be alerted to what he was trying to tell the churches. Because if John had simply said, hey, revolt against your leaders or press back against the pressure that they're putting on you, the Roman soldiers, they're not going to say, okay, John, thanks so much for writing this. Let me go take it to your followers. That would not make sense to them. So as John writes this, I imagine that they read what he was writing before they passed it on. And they said, man, these are the ramblings of a crazy person. This dude, he's been sitting out in the sun a little too long. And they would not have understood it. What a gift that would have been for the churches. So some of that is historical. All of that is based in the Bible. Everybody good with that? So we have, to answer, we have to answer these questions, who, what, when, where, and why. Revelation overarching is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. Revelation is not about the rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. That's why John wrote the book of Revelation. If you agree with everything I just said, if you have no idea if what I just said was true, if you disagree with everything that I just said, that's fine. Send me an email. That's, that's fine. Send me a text. I've already read the, the commentaries that I disagree. That's fine. Here's what we must agree on, is that it is not about the Antichrist trying to figure that out, but it is about the living Christ. It is not about how do we get out of this situation, but it's about how do we remain faithful to Jesus in the days that we have left. Once we figure that out, then let's argue about a date. 
Once we figure out how to, how to love our wives well and how to disciple our children well and how to be faithful in our giving of our time and our resources, yeah, let's look at the particulars. Let's look at the little small pebbles. These are big rocks. This is big picture stuff. The reason that John received this, why was this shown to John? So that John would see Jesus as he is now. Because John is in the midst of persecution, in the midst of exile, and the father says, I want you to know who Jesus Christ is today, John, or whatever today's date is. Why do we read this apocalypse? For the exact same reason, friend, so that we can know Christ better. That's why we read this book. Verse number 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Real quick, quick aside. Again, this may be one of those screens where you want to take a picture of it. We're going to see numbers all throughout the book of Revelation. Almost every time we see a number, it's symbolic of something else that's happening. We see all these numbers plus several more. But the base, we see these repeated all throughout. So we know if we see a third or a half, it means a limited scope or time. If we see the number three, it's a distinct group, either of divinity or false divinity. Last week, we saw the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the dragon and a couple of beasts. Three, divinity or false divinity. When we see three and a half, we can either take that and mean literal and start a clock as soon as it begins and figure out when it ends. And sometimes we have to interpret that literally and sometimes it's symbolically. Here's what it means, though. It means a limited time. Why not choose a different number than half of seven? So half of seven, the number of perfection, three and a half is a limited time, is half of seven. Number four, whenever we see that's a completeness in a universal sense, we have these four winds from the four corners of the world. It's the world, a sense of completeness. Number six is humanity. It means imperfection. The number 666, we can figure out exactly, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, his letters are this, and, uh, you know, Donald Trump's son, his, the address is 666. If you go to get to a coffee shop, used to, you could buy a coffee and a, a scone for $6.66. Oh, no, I got to buy something else. Put some jelly on that, you know. I don't want to be 666. It's humanity represents imperfection because it's not seven. Seven is the number of completion and perfection. It's used 54 times throughout the book of Revelation. When we see the number 10, it's a number of completeness in this human dimension. When we see the number 12, it's a fullness of God's people, tribes, his presence. And we, we see the number 1,000 or a multiple of 1,000. It just means a really big number. Because not the book of Revelation. It's like when we get to the number 144,000. It's a multiple of the perfection of God's people, a really large number. And then later, just a few verse, a few chapters later, John doesn't say, hey, 144,000 exact. He says, there's a great multitude. And he's talking about the same two things. So it's a lot of people. The other reason the number seven is, is really important. And we're not going to get into this whole, uh, you know, try to figure out exactly what all these things mean. But the book of Revelation, just for future reference, is broken into seven key parts. This first part that we're in right now, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, and verse 22, the end of the seven churches, is the Son of Man and seven churches. Then we're going to look at the Lamb and seven seals of the scroll. The third part is the seven trumpets. Then the war with the dragon, which we'll be covering through Palm Sunday, um, Good Friday, and Easter. I'm stoked about that. And then the fifth one that we see are the seven bowls of wrath. Sixthly, the fall of Babylon the whore. 
And then the victory, lastly, of Jerusalem, who is the bride. And that's how we close out the book of Revelation. So if you want to take a picture of that, just put that somewhere. I'm not going to cover this week after week. But just so you know, it's broken up into these seven primary parts. And the book of Revelation, as we see here, it retraces the same events from different perspectives. So my wife last night, praise God, she made my favorite cake in the world, a chocolate peanut butter cake. And I just need chocolate peanut butter cake, but the one that she makes, all right? Somebody trying to bring me a cake. Oh, I brought you a chocolate. No, no, just pay Shannon to make me one, okay? I would love that way more than uh, your knockoff chocolate peanut butter cake. It's amazing, but it's got these different layers to it. I don't eat one layer of the cake with this delicious peanut butter frosting and this chocolate ganache on top with a tall glass of whole milk. I know, new year, new me, trying to, you know, but it doesn't work when she makes a chocolate peanut butter cake. It's the Super Bowl, all right? I'm looking for a John 316 sign, but I don't eat one layer and oh, okay, I'm done. No, I, we have these different layers that I eat together, but they're still separated by the frosting and by the ganache. So as we see this here, we're looking at the book of Revelation at this spiritual realm from different perspectives. That's how we're going to look at the book of Revelation. It's one item and we're going to look at it from the perspective of the world. Then we're going to look at it from the perspective of God and the angels. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of Satan and our enemy. All right? Verse number 13. We'll make it through probably. I promise that we might. When we look at verse number 13, I want us to see here, and this will be up on the screen. Uh, when we see verse number 13, a few things that I want us to notice. So we see here in verse number 12, the golden lampstands. Verse number 13, we have here, um, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now notice we talked last week about the difference between metaphor and simile. Metaphor is uh, he has a heart of stone. She has a heart of gold. You're saying this is this. Simile is, is like this, is as this. And here, John, he begins by saying, uh, first of all, verse number 13, I'm just going to walk through this real quick. Verse number 12, we saw this already. Then I turn to see the voice. Isn't that interesting? You, you, you see a voice. Uh, often we don't see a voice. What, what do we do with a voice? You hear it. But here John turns because this is a complete experience for him. It's a visceral experience. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. We just talked about that. And in the midst of them, now this word mist right here is important. And we're going to come back to that. We can circle that. We're going to come back to mist later. In the midst of the lampstands, here's what we see. There's one like a son of man. And this, by the way, is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ. We said this last week, John, uh, in the book of Revelation, there are 404 verses. There are 518 references to the Old Testament. This is reference to the Old Testament because this reference to son of man right here is a Hebraic, it's an Old Testament way. It's a technical term for saying this is a human being. Now, John had spent years with Jesus. He knew Jesus really well, but he had never seen Jesus like this. He had never, this is John, the one that Jesus loved. The one that outran short little Peter, you know, from the tomb back to tell everybody else. John got there first. This is John who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. And here he's like, whoa, I know Jesus and this looks like him, but this is blowing my mind. He's not saying, let me give you the details of this so you can know exactly what to look for so you can know what to expect. He's saying, man, this is like the son of, son of man. This is wild. He says, this is, G this is someone who is like a son of man. 
Notice what he has on. He is clothed. He is clothed. As we look here at verse number 13, what's, and when we see someone clothed in certain things, we can identify them as, as such, all right? So if you see someone who's wearing a, a policeman's outfit, guess what they do for a living? When we see someone who's wearing a, a red suit with a hat and it says fire department, you can guess what they do for a living. To, if, if you see someone wearing a chief's, you, you're not going to see this probably. You're not going to see someone wearing a chief's shirt and uh, a, a pair of, you know, 49ers, you know, pants. You're not going to see that. No, because you're like, yeah, it doesn't matter who you're cheering for. I don't know. That, that doesn't make sense. If they're wearing a Chiefs shirt, you don't say, hey, man, you a Falcons fan? No, man, that don't make sense. Because clothing identifies us. It gives us away. So notice here what he's wearing. This is like a man, son of man clothed, and he does this for the sake of identity. He's clothed with, first of all, with a long robe. Now, this long robe here, it means that he is a priest. And in Latin, uh, the word priest is the word pontifex. Everybody say pontifex. That word literally means a bridge builder. And what a priest would do, a priest represents the holiness and splendor of God, and he represents the sinfulness and fallenness of man. And the priest goes between and says, let me bring to you the presence of God. And then let me take your sin and let me present it as a sacrifice to perfect holy God. So we have Jesus here pictured as this perfect high priest. But notice what's around his chest with a golden sash, which represents royalty. Anytime we see gold throughout the book of Revelation, it represents royalty. There's something different about him. He's not just human. He's spiritual. He's, he's full of splendor. He's otherworldly. He's royal. Now, as a priest had a sash, if they were working, if they were there in the temple working, or if they were out in the field, whatever they were doing working, that sash would be down around their waist. But here it says it's up around his chest. And what that means is the priest would take that sash, go from his waist to his chest when he was done with work for the day. So here we have Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says he's our perfect high priest. He can identify with us because he's fully human. He can identify with God because he's 100% God, this hypostatic union. And here it says, his work is finished. There is nothing else for this priest, for Jesus Christ, for the Son of Man to do. He has done everything that needs to be done for us to have life here today in this world and beyond the grave. Can somebody just say Amen. So John says, man, look, I see Jesus Christ. His work is done. There's nothing else to be done. He's ruling and reigning, this great high priest. Look at verse number 14. And, and you can almost feel the way he's trying to tell us, Jesus is, is like a son of man. Like, can you believe this? He's just like struggling to, to get the words out of his mouth. It's like he's, he's like a son of man, and the hairs of his head were white. What are they, what are they white like? White wool, like snow. That's how white it was. That means Jesus, he's saying Jesus is pure. He's sinless. He's perfectly clean. He's altogether holy. He became sin for us. Then he went down into the grave. He left our sin there. Then he burst forth like, Jesus, like David talked about earlier. Jesus, same kind of thing, similar beard, uh, probably different you know, complexion. Uh, he's, he left our sin there in the grave. He bursts out victorious. 
Now he is sinless after becoming our sin. He says, no longer am I taking, I don't have your sin anymore. It's been paid for. It's been dealt with. Here he is perfect. Not only is he pure though, he is purifying. Notice what he says in the second half of verse number 14 here. His eyes, his eyes, what are they like? Are his eyes literally a flame of fire? This is where we're getting into trouble for the next 15 weeks. If we begin applying exactly what we see and we start, this is what it is. What does the fire represent? Man, I don't know. Because it's not fire. It's like fire. But it says fire. Yeah, but you missed the word like. His eyes are like a flame of fire. It's like this flame of fire. And what does fire do? It illuminates. It it. It penetrates, it burns away. So hear what John is saying. It cleanses. It burns away any impurities. Look at verse number 15. His feet, he's still talking about uh, his description here, his physical description. His feet were like burnished bronze. In other words, his feet are like bronze. Then we can reference back to uh, the book of Daniel. Here he's saying this bronze has been burnished. It's been purified there in the fire already. It's already been tested. His work is done. He's been refined in the furnace. Like And his voice was like, his voice was like the roar of many waters. I, I imagine the, I've never been to Niagara Falls. I'd love to go one day. But I imagine sitting at the bottom of Niagara Falls and just, that's what it sounds like. The voice of God, when he speaks, you can feel it. This is the kingdom of God, the ruler of the kingdom of God that we're talking about here. His feet are not on shaky ground like every other kingdom in this world. His feet are burnished bronze. You can't mess with them. They can't be cracked. His voice is loud, it's strong. And then in verse number 16, In his right hand, now notice he doesn't say like his right hand. He's saying in his right hand, he held seven stars. Right hand is important. We're going to see that again in a second. What does he hold? He held seven stars. How many stars? Seven. Is that important? Yes. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It, it pierces to the very heart of who we are. Do I think that literally we have a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus? I, I don't think so. I think what he's saying is these words, his words pierce. They bring truth. And in chapter two and verse number four, sorry, verse number 14, we're gonna see that he, he's talking there to the church and he's saying, if you are in sin, you need to repent. And my words are going to bring that necessary repentance. Jesus Christ brings the words of life, the words of light, His words, they're they're a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, notice his face here. It was like the sun, shining at full strength. As we see Christ here holding these seven stars, I think the reason that John uses this illusion, because uh, in the first century, astrologists, they were uh, of one of the highest levels of prestige there in the society. In the astrologers, they would look at the stars and here's what they mean and let's see this. John here is going right after the things that they worship. And he's saying, man, you think you got this world figured out? You think the world has all these answers? Jesus is sitting here holding the stars in one of his hands. This is the God that we worship. Jesus Christ who came back from the dead, he says, I've got the stars all right here in my right hand. I've got the whole world. He's got the whole world in his 
Now, some of y'all said hands, some said hands. Some are plural, some are singular. I think that's interesting. I don't know which one is the original. I should have looked that up. Somebody can do that for me. But either way, it's right here in his hand. In his right hand, he's got everything. What great transcendence we see here from the risen Christ. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then look at verse number 17. And when I saw him, when John, he said, when I saw him, he doesn't say when I thought about it, but when I saw him, look at what John does. He fell at his feet as though dead. When we see, when we gaze upon the beauty and the splendor and the holiness and the perfection of Jesus, we have no other response but to fall in worship. And John says, I fell on my feet as though dead. And notice what Jesus does at the end of verse number 17. But he laid his, which hand? Right hand on me. Where did we see that before? In verse number 16. He laid his right hand on me. Christ who is transcendent, who is majestic, who is the almighty one. He doesn't remain aloof. He doesn't remain at distance. He comes and he touches John right on the shoulder. He says, I'm your friend. I know you. I'm with you. You know me. I want to be close to you. Notice what Jesus says here. He says, fear not, for I'm the first and the last, the living one. And we saw this last week. We have the Father and we have the Trinity saying, I'm the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And Jesus says, here, don't worry. I've got everything under control. I am the living one. He says, you can stop being afraid. Why can we stop being afraid? Friend, we can stop being afraid because Jesus has walked into the jaws of our greatest enemy. He has walked into death and he has burst forth from death with the keys to the prison. And he says, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Evil enforces its rule with the fear of death. Think about your greatest fear besides public speaking, besides snakes, besides heights. Our greatest fear, the fear of death. The fear of being criticized. The fear of being abandoned or rejected. The fear of financial loss. The fear of physical pain. And Jesus says, you don't have to fear anything. Those are all marks of the enemy because I have the keys. You don't have to fear anymore. There is no fear in this life or for the next. Amen? So see the picture here. Grasp the picture. Let the imagery grab you. Grab you. Jesus says, I have the keys of death. No one else has them. There is no need to fear. I am alive. I cannot be put to death again. And I have the keys. So he comes to John. He touches him on the shoulder. He says, man, come and rest. Come and be. I've done everything there is to do. I've done everything that is necessary for you to be with me. And then look down at verse number 20. He talks about this mystery. He says here this mystery. So then he tells him, right there for the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, and he here explains, here's exactly what I was talking about uh, through, through this image. Here, here's what I'm talking about. But as we see this word mystery, here's what I want us to see. This mystery is not a puzzle that is meant to baffle us. This mystery is an infinity to explore. This mystery is not a reduction saying, hey, let me tell you so you can figure this stuff out. 
He's not reducing this to simple terms. He's expanding our vision. And that's what visions do. That's what apocalyptic literature does. He says, man, let this blow your mind. He's not saying, let me explain the mystery so you can move on to the next thing. He says, can you believe this? This is wild. This is crazy. This is the mystery that he's talking about. And here's the mystery of that. So verse number 20, for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I don't know exactly what he's talking about here. A lot of smart guys have uh, spilled a lot of ink on this, on this topic. Uh, he's either talking about pastors or missionaries or real angels. I don't know. The word angel there is the, is the word for missionary. But he says that's what they represent. They're angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, in Old Testament, in the tabernacle, there is one lampstand with seven different lamps on it. Here he says there are seven lampstands because our unity is not in our Old Testament identity. Our unity is in Christ. And he says here, these are the seven lampstands. These are the seven churches. But I said pay attention because if we go back up, look at verse number 13. And where is Jesus in this whole picture? Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The point of this passage is not for us to figure out where are these churches, what do they mean, who are the messengers. The point is to, for us to look at Christ and say, he is here among us. He is here among his people. He's not above looking down. He's not outside looking in. Listen, the risen and living Jesus lives and moves among his churches. The risen and living Jesus lives and moves among his churches. Now we would think, why would he want to live and move among us? We're sinful. We're still, we're still messed up. We still bring great shame to the name of Jesus. Jesus is familiar with this. He's familiar with our shame, with our pain, with our sinfulness, with our brokenness. He was born in a manger. He was born in poverty. His parents had nowhere else to stay. He had to work. His dad was either a stonemason probably or some sort of carpenter. Even people in his own town didn't like him. They, they cast him out. He had nowhere to lay his head. He barely had anything to eat. The people that he came to save were the ones that put him on the cross. And that's where his coronation as king took place with his arms outstretched and nails in his hands and in his feet. He says, I'm your king. This is why I've come. He's familiar with shame. He's familiar with sorrow. He's familiar with pain. And that's why he here in the midst of us can say, I know. You say, Jesus, I don't know if you can understand this pain. He says, I know. You say, I don't know if you can comprehend the amount of shame that I feel. He says, I know. I don't know, Jesus, it, this is, I was rejected by these who were close to me. And he says, I know. I was too. You said, Jesus, I don't know if you can understand or comprehend this longing that I have. He says, yeah, I have great deep longings. Because Jesus Christ is among his churches. And the presence of the risen and the glorified Jesus is the great unseen reality of the present. If you take away nothing else, take that away. The presence of the risen and glorified Jesus is the great unseen reality of the present of today. And here I think this passage is actually a, quite a missional passage. Jesus is saying, I'm right here with you. Why did I come? For the sake of your souls. He says, believe this. Take this and proclaim it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, right there in the middle of the Beatitudes, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. 
in the same way, let your light, let your, wait, isn't Jesus the light of the world? Yeah. Who else is the light of the world? He says, I'm giving you this light. So if you have faith in Christ, who's the light of the world? You are. You are. And he's given you that light. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that, this is why Christ came. This is why we go. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Daryl Johnson, um, uh, he wrote a book on, on Revelation. I talked about this last week. But he says, eschatology, the study of the end times, is the most pastoral of all the theological perspectives. Showing how the ending What's going to happen impinges on the present in such ways that the truth of the gospel is verified in life in the middle. So we look back and see that Jesus Christ came. We look forward to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. Here's the big idea, friend. Jesus Christ has won. And Jesus Christ is going to win. So how do we step into what Christ has for us today in the middle? We must have a bigger, more global view of the kingdom. We must have a bigger, more expansive view of the kingdom and the power and the presence of Jesus. You see, we we look around and we think that God is worried. We think that he's surprised that the USA is going woke or going liberal or going whichever way you don't like. And he's up there like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. I, I mean, I used to have America kind of as a backup plan. So, so now we don't know what to do. And so we as his followers were like, okay, let's move to Texas uh, or Tennessee or uh, Threads or Monticello or to a new church. Yeah, that'll save us. And Jesus is here saying, no, no, that's not going to save you because I have called you. I have filled you. I've given you my presence and my power and I have sent you. Heaven is going to be filled with every color, every tribe, every language, every race, men and women. That is our destiny. Friends, may that begin now. May that begin now. May we have a bigger view of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus says that I am life. And if Jesus Christ is life, that is not just going to affect, it is going to radically transform how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our resources, how we spend our conversations, how we think. If Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, and if he is the source of your life, it is going to transform, radically transform every part of the way that you live. And so I would plead with you this morning as his people, as we gaze, as we look at Christ, I'm pleading with you that we would surrender everything that we are to his lordship. And if you have never done that, if you are still living for yourself, you can do that this morning. Fall upon his mercy. He has paid the penalty for your sin. He's identified with you and he takes his righteousness and he says, here, I want to give you my righteousness. He doesn't just take your, the debt that you owe and bring your balance back to zero and now you've got to fill it up, fill up your righteousness tank. He says, no, no, I'm taking the debt that you owe, the wrath of God. I'm paying that for you. And I'm saying, here's my righteousness. Repent and believe. Surrender who you are to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that we as your people, man, there's a lot of stuff here. We covered a whole lot of stuff. I pray that we would never grow tired 
of pursuing your presence. I pray that you would give us strength and endurance in the face of everything that the enemy throws at us, in the face of pain and of struggle and of disappointments and of sickness and death, that you would remind us that you are with us, that you've got us, that your hand is on us, that you welcome us, that you empower us, that you send us. We pray for your kingdom to be on this earth as it is in heaven. Give us eyes to see you. Give us hearts to love you. Give us souls to know you. It's in Christ's name. All God's people said, Amen.